part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Was your seat at this morning? Open your Bibles to James. We are traveling verse by verse through James, uh, kind of scooping this out. It looks like we'll be in James uh, for at least uh, September or so because we don't want to go too fast. And uh, this morning, I, I want to remind you, if you were not here last week, I realized uh, several people were out because of Mother's Day. You were with your family, and that was great and wonderful. But we said that James uh, is not a really a doctrinal book. It is it's very much a book of application. And even some of the early church fathers and some of the theologians a long time have said, okay, does that really need to be included in the Bible? And uh, we, we come back and we find out that it very much is because James had a point and he was really talking about, okay, here's the theology, but here's the life. Don't, don't you wish sometimes Christianity was as easy as just the theology? Some facts that you could memorize? Maybe even, you know, some people approach Christianity just from the mere, okay, here's the rules that we have. And if I do these rules and I can be obedient to these rules, then I'm a pretty good Christian. And so we get out the Ten Commandments or we get some other commandment and we see if we can just master those things. James hits us right where we live, guys. This is real Christianity. As we said last week, this is the deep end of the pool. It's not that James said, okay, get your, kind of get your toes accustomed to the water. Now go out there. And, and you know that point of the pool? It's different from girls and guys. Where you kind of get to the place and it's past your knees. And then it's kind of the critical section. Okay? And you know, we have uh, acclimated my body to this, but okay, at that point you have to kind of say, okay, I'm either going to jump in or excruciatingly I'm, I'm going to take it inch by inch. And you have to go through that of just the process of the rest of your body getting that cold water. And so what I do a lot of times is just jump in. Well, James, instead of kind of getting us acclimated to the water and saying, okay, here's something really simple, here's something a little bit more difficult, from the very beginning he tells us what seemingly is impossible to consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. That is not natural to anybody. You might be sitting here going, you know, I really have a difficult with that, Bobby. I would have, I promise you that everybody in here has difficulty with that. Nobody's mastered that. And, and so this morning we're going to continue on because last week we were left with this thought that, okay, why can we know and count it all joy. Well, what do we have to know? We have to know that God is sovereign. And we begin to see that the sovereignty of God means that we're never going to come upon a problem that he's not aware of, that he can't see us through, that he does not have an answer for. But the biggest thing that I hope that you saw last week is that there's a purpose in it. God is not just testing you. Even though it says you're going to be tested by this, it's not one of those pass-fail tests where he says, okay, I just wanted to see. I was kind of playing with you. No, he says, I'm developing. There's a purpose in this. Because I want you to come out at the end of this, whether it's a month from now, three months from now, three years from now, I want you to come out more like Christ. If you are a Christian, if you put your faith and your trust in Christ, in Christ alone, folks, that's the aim of your life. It is not just to to marry and be happy. It's not just, okay, I want to have a wonderful family. All of those are blessings. All those things are great. If you are a Christian, God's call upon your life is to be like Christ. And to mature more and more and more until that day that he does the final maturing, that glorification. And until that time, he he is going to keep on maturing you. He does it out of love. And so that's really the Christian life. But maturation is not always easy. And so we look at a verse like James 1-2 and it says, Consider it all joy when you fall into these various trials. 
And he really expects that? And the answer is yes. There's some things in life that just seem to go together. Peanut butter and... Yeah, okay. I thought there'd at least be one that would say banana. You know, that that would kind of throw that in there. Romeo and... uh, Salton. Okay. Batman. Okay, I knew that Lee would get that one for for sure. (laughs) Macaroni and... I mean, we think of one and we almost instantly kind of think of them in this combined form. I'm going to tell you right up front, here's what I believe James wants us to learn, what Christ wants us to learn, what James, when he was writing this, really wanted us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to, to kind of take away from this morning. And that is that we would see this considerate all joy, this call for joy, even in the midst of trials, that it has to be matched with a godly wisdom that it is impossible without godly wisdom, without that insight to know that God is not wasting this. He is is using this for great purpose. And and so since these two things, to consider it all joy, is the requirement of that to really kind of pull that off is godly wisdom, not a wisdom of your own, not a wisdom that comes from a book, not wisdom that comes from man's understanding, but from God and God alone. Since these two things are linked together in the writing of James, Let's go back and read verse 2 through 4. Kind of set it up, and then we'll continue on this morning. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers. Again, this is for Christians. These are people who have put their faith and trust in Christ. He's not speaking to all of humanity here, okay? These are believers. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, last week we talked a little bit about imperatives and indicatives. Not that you have to kind of memorize what those are, but but here's the point that I want you to know about imperatives and indicatives in the Bible. God will never ask you to do something, command you to do something, an imperative, that is not based on the work that he's already done through Christ. And as we saw last week, that's why we see this constant use of the word therefore. Paul used it all the time. Here's what Christ has done. Therefore, here's how you live. And at the basis of this call to consider it all joy is an indicative. It it, it very much is, okay, because God is going to use this. Because what God has already done, what he's already established, you can face these things, the unknown and the known, with the perspective of joy, that God is working to mature you. And so what is it that we begin to see then as he begins to kind of connect the, the peanut butter with the jelly this morning, as he be, brings these two understandings? James wants us to know that joy and wisdom really are our cousins. When you get joy from wisdom, you get wisdom from joy. It's a working relationship. And I could preach James 1 through 5. I've given it out in council a lot of times. Hey, go home and read James 1 through 5, you know, 1, 1 5, and, and, and ask for wisdom on this matter. But to see the fullness of it, you really have to see it in its entirety. That's the beauty of expository preaching. That's the beauty of starting in James 1 1 and taking months to go through a book. One of the things that's so attracted to me, uh, me to, to you as a church, is knowing that you had a history of that. That you had people, okay, we're, we're going to just, you know, we're not going to do it all the time, but we're going to take books of the Bible. We're just going to methodically go through so that we can see the context. See, you and I live in a day of sound bites. 
I mean, they'll take a whole, uh, I mean, we're in the middle of political season and they do it, you know, really well. They do it a whole bunch right now. And they'll take an hour speech and they'll clip off, what, 15 seconds and say, you won't believe what Trump said today. Man, you won't believe what Clinton said. And if they have a purpose, would you agree, would you at least mentally agree with me that you can take an hour's worth of a speech and you can turn it about ever any way that you want to if you just take out about 15 seconds? Here's the problem, guys. Because we live in that culture, because we live in a world like that, we've done that with Christianity. We've done that with Christianity. We've done that with the Word of God. We've become very weak-kneed. We've become very immature, and we've been, uh, become very soundbite-ish with our Christianity. Well, you know, I can do all things through Christ and strengthens me. And we use it. Now, is that a truth, that we can do all things through Christ? I, please hear that I'm not mocking the Word of God. But it's understanding what that real call was. That call was not that tomorrow... When I, when I play a game, that I can hit a home run instead of strike out. It, it really, really probably doesn't belong on a T-shirt, you know, for some sports kind of thing. And yet we take something like that and we put it into this application. And what we have is really kind of inch-deep Christianity. When you look at the Word of God in context, you see the depth of it. All of a sudden, there, there is a challenge there. It's not just easy to kind of swallow. I mean, when I, when I read some of the Scripture and you just take a little bit of, that's easy Christianity. But then Monday happens, guys. And Tuesday happens. And Wednesday night happens. And Thursday morning at 2 o'clock in the morning happens. And here's what I promise you guys. That at 2 o'clock Thursday morning, when your heart is breaking, you don't need a sound bite. You need the full counsel of the Word of God. And so that's why we study. That's why it's so purposeful to kind of go through books methodically and we begin to to see this as we begin to see what this transition that that James makes. Look at James 1.5. He just told us to, to have joy, consider it all joy, not happiness, but joy. Why? Because we know something. We know what? We know that God is sovereign. We know that He is purposeful. And we know that He loves us. So built upon that, now look what he says in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now again, is that a truth all by itself? Yeah. I mean, if you want to put that on your bathroom cabinet this week or the bathroom mirror so that you see it every morning, that, that's fine just to put that one verse up there. You can claim that verse. But I tell you this, when you look at it in context, when you begin to see the, the whole story of what he's said, what he's saying, and what he's about to say, it, it just gets better. It doesn't take away from this promise. All of a sudden that promise becomes understandable. And, and get this, with proper understanding, with the wisdom of God, it actually becomes doable. Because that's probably the biggest challenge of your Christian life and my Christian life is to go out on Sunday morning with a mental desire and even a heart's desire to follow Christ and then just hit Monday morning. That's the challenge, folks. You know the longest distance that you will ever trace in your life is about 14 to 15, 16 inches, head to heart. Because there's going to be times in your life that your head says one thing and your heart says another. And your head may actually be right. 
in your heart wrong. There's going to be other times that you know in your heart the right thing to do, and yet your head says, but here's all the repercussions if I don't. You know, what about this? What about that? And so the biggest distance that you will ever have to travel in faith in your life is about 12, 14, 16 inches. And James is saying, here's how you travel that. Here's how you connect heart and head. When one says one thing and the other says the other thing, here's how you live out Monday morning, Tuesday night, Friday afternoon, 2 o'clock in the morning, your heart is breaking. This is how you do Christianity. And he brings it all back to the beauty of Christ. He brings it all back to faith in what has been done in Christ. Look at that truth. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Again, the truth in that verse all by itself. And yet there's so much there. See, one of the things that when trials come, if we go back to verse 2 and 3 and these various trials, the word that James uses to fall into those trials, we only see that word two other times in the New Testament. When the person fell into the thieves, when Paul fell into a shipwreck, in other words, they weren't looking for it. It just came. They kind of fell into it. He says, when you fall into these various trials, you weren't looking for trouble, but you found trouble. And it really felt like trouble found you. He said, when that happens, naturally this is what goes off in your mind and my mind. Three questions. We've covered them before. Why me? Why this? Why now? You're not unique in that. Maybe you haven't used those exact terms, but but have you asked yourself those questions? Usually in chorus together. Not just one in isolation from the other, but usually when, when trials hit us, these three things just come naturally to us. But here's the thing. They come naturally to Christians and non Christians. This is one way that we're all similar just because we're made in the image of God where you were humans, we have this capacity to think, and so we ask when troubles come, why me? Why this? Why now? And sometimes if we're a little bit religious, we direct those questions where? To God. And we really expect an answer. I mean, if he is a personal God, is he going to explain this? I really think that's the heart of what James is saying in verse 5. He's told us to consider it all joy. Why? Because we know. We know what? God is sovereign. God has purpose. He's working toward maturity in our lives. So he gives us the foundation, but then he comes back and he says, okay, guys, but I know that Monday morning is coming and Tuesday night and and Thursday afternoon, so so you're going to need some wisdom. Wisdom is not just knowledge. Wisdom is how to apply facts and knowledge to live life. But here he's using this word wisdom in a capacity in connection with this trial. Okay, you need wisdom to kind of understand <laughs> that God really is using this. Because there's these three questions that are going off in your stomach, in your mind, and in your heart. And then there's the word of God. So James is writing, he says, okay, <laughs> wisdom, you need wisdom? to embrace this, to kind of get this, God will give you wisdom. He says, okay, let him ask God for wisdom. Wisdom is more than information. It's more than just instruction. It's instruction for understanding. It's kind of like this. Any baseball players, you played baseball at some point in time. You take a a 12-year-old kid 
And it's the, I think they still play seven innings. You know, it's the seventh inning, last inning. Uh, in a lot of St. Lot games, they don't play the nine innings. So it's the last inning. Your, your team is down by, by one run. You've you got to run around first. You've got to run around second. And then the coach, you look up there, and he's giving you the bunt signal. Now, if you're a 12-year-old kid, and you're down by a run, and you see a runner on first and second, the last thing that you really think in your mind as a baseball player is the bunt, right? Can we go to that next slide? That's what I was always thinking. <laughs> Swing away. You know, I mean, a home run wins this game. You know, a good double or triple wins this game. And yet you look down and the coach is, is telling you to bond, and, and you're going, bond? Makes no sense whatsoever. Now, here's what the coach is thinking. The coach is not just thinking about you bunting the ball and making it out. He's thinking about moving those runners over to second and third so that the next guy perhaps can get that single then and score two runs and win the game. He's got a plan. He's got something in mind. But, you know, it's really hard when in your mind you're thinking a home run wins this or... If you've played baseball, bunting is pretty scary. Go back to that other picture if you can. Now, here you're away from the ball. Here you're in front of the ball. You're waiting for the ball to come right at you, and you miss it with the bat, and it's, you know, for the most part, it's going to come off your shoulder or come off your body at some point in time. Bunting is really difficult. It goes against what the mental mind says. The mental mind says get a hip and hit and win the game and be the hero. James is telling us here, that a lot of things that look like an out have the greater purpose because the coach knows what else is in the line, who else is coming up in the lineup. He's got a plan, and he knows that the object of the game is to win the game. And so, yeah, a single or a double would be great, but what about a double play to end the game? So he's going to move those runners over there so that there's not a forced out. Coaches get paid a lot of money to think that. Twelve-year-olds don't get a lot of money to think that. Twelve-year-olds do exactly what twelve-year-olds are supposed to do. I'm going to let this ball sail, and I'm going to be the hero. And spiritually, I I think we sometimes get caught up being twelve-year-olds. That the only way that we see out of the trial is for God to take the trial away. The only victory that we can imagine is that somehow God just erases, takes the the trial. He he works it all out. Everything begins to just feel good again. Uh, We kind of get happy. And there are so many times that we can just look biblically where he did not take the trial away. What he did is mature the person through the trial. And that was always so encouraging in vacation Bible school, in Sunday school, when it was somebody else, when it was Samson or David, or this person, or that person. It's like, yes, they're kind of my hero. They made it through the tough times, and look at them now. It's not so much fun when it's you. When God allows trial in your life with the same purpose for maturity and Christ-likeness, that if we're going to have Romans 8.28, that we've got to understand it's based on Romans 8.29 so that you can be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. And yet there are so many parts of me that are not like Christ that it's a really big work. It's not really comforting, and it's not really all that kind of easy. And so that's when God says, or James, 
under the inspiration of God, and the Holy Spirit says, okay, you can ask for wisdom in this, because you're not just by your own. You're a 12-year-old. You've been asked to bunt, and, and bunting doesn't seem like the thing to do here. And all of a sudden, that 12-year-old really isn't going to get that understanding without the wisdom of the bigger picture. And that's where we find ourselves with James. In real life, wisdom is knowing that there's a real big difference between God getting you and God maturing you. One of the first things that comes to our mind, even as Christians, people who have put faith and trust in in God, is that when bad things happen, that is punishment. Have you ever had that? I mean, am I just talking to myself? Or have you ever leaned an ill in your life, a trial, a trouble in your life, with kind of God's not correcting hand, not discipline, but punishment. Yeah. God kind of says, okay, dust and stick at your hand. It's punishment. It's not discipline. It's not based on love. It's not based on just a maturing action. It's, it's, it's really kind of an angry response to sin in our lives. And, and we are so naturally driven to think that God does it. So I got this question. I want you to really think through this this morning. If you're a Christian, this only applies to those who have put faith and trust in Christ. Not that we're better, but this is who he's talking to. This truth only applies to Christians. If you're a Christian, does God punish you when you sin? I see a couple no's. I see some more no's. Anybody think yes? We've got some people going, yeah, that could, you know, he does punish us. But here's the correct answer, okay? Biblically speaking, not Bobby's, uh, you know, version. This Bobby says, this is what the Bible says. The answer to that is no. He would be an unjust God to punish somebody twice when it's already been paid. See, that's where Paul's coming. Romans 8, 1, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. He said, okay, you're in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation. There is no punishment for you. Why? Because Christ took it all on himself. Now, that may be a very foreign thought to you this morning, especially when you're encountering trials, because it does seem like, man, I did this, and so God's doing that. Now, here's the difference. Does God discipline? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But punishment and discipline are two entirely different things. But if you don't get anything else out of the sermon this morning, I I pray that you get this, that you would know that it would be unjust of God to place all the punishment of my sin on Christ. And Christ goes to the grave, he goes to the cross, then he goes to the grave, and he resurrects from that with victory over sin, death, and the grave. And then to come back and say, okay, but Ricky, I saw what you did this week, so I'm going to punish you for that. That's not holy, it's not just, and it's not God. And the only reason that Paul could write, like uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 and and Romans 8.1 and and those verses that proclaim who we are now in Christ Jesus is because of this truth. There's theology, and then there's feelings. And it's the feelings that we kind of stumble over because it sure does seem like punishment. Uh, go back just a couple pages, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to do this twice this morning. 
I really don't think that Hebrews was written in the time frame of James. I think James was written well before Hebrews. Uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. I have my suspicions, but we really don't know. So I won't claim to, to know who that is. But it is convenient that for this argument this morning that we can have these two books kind of side by side because I want you to go back and I want you to see that while God doesn't punish Christians for sin, he will discipline. Because I don't want you walking out of here this morning going, man, I can just do whatever I want. Paul had to correct that with the Corinthians time and time and time again. Almost every New Testament church that took on that philosophy, Paul had to come back and say, that's not the truth. But here's the truth, guys. The discipline uh, the difference between discipline and punishment. Punishment is rested in, in anger and payment. Discipline is rested and rooted in love and maturity. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 6 and 7. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to, What? Say it real loud. Endure. Now, did we see that last week? What did James say that, that going through trials and counted all joy, what was it producing in our lives? Steadfastness, which is endurance. We said that some of the, the versions that you might have were, use the word endurance. Others will use steadfastness. It's the same thing. Well, here this writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing. That Okay, God disciplines you. Why? Because there's this endurance the steadfastness that he wants to develop in you. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Look down in verse 9 and 10. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. Did he end there? What's the rest of that verse? That we might share in his holiness. He's working, he's purposing this in your life for a reason, guys. Satan would love for you to believe would love for you to believe, man, that trouble in your life, man, that's just because you're kind of out of whack last week. Spiritually, you get out of whack, you miss that quiet time. Man, God doesn't look favorably upon that. You miss that quiet time, stick out your hand. That's not God. But he is a God who disciplines. He is a father who loves you so supremely that he's always working for his glory and for your good. You can count that God is working everything, even those difficult times in your lives, for his glory and for your good. And when we get kind of minor infractions in life, guys, we can go, okay, that wasn't so bad. But what about the real heartbreaks of life when the cancer doesn't go away? When the spouse does say, I want a divorce, that's the only thing I want. Deep into the pool kind of stuff. Not baby pool with floaties. Not immature Christianity. Not sound bites from this little clip so we will feel better about ourselves and we can put a bumper sticker on the back of our car and go, yeah, you know, yay God. James throws us in the deep end of the pool, but he doesn't leave us there to sink. 
He says, I, I put you back there because I want you to know that God has an answer for this. But you're going to need wisdom to understand this because it's not going to come naturally to you. In fact, anything, your nature might actually revolt against this. And, and I've seen that in my own life. Rebellion against God. Not wanting God's discipline in my life. Thinking that it wasn't discipline, but that it was punishment. Believing it with all my heart. God, how can you be such a mean God? When none of this is true. Uh, look at this last verse, Hebrews twelve eleven. I love the reality of the Bible. Why can we trust it? Because it's a real book. It's God's book. And he doesn't sugarcoat things. Look what he says in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems what? Painful. This would be a great place to go, amen. <laughs> and it does. Discipline is painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is working in purpose. Remember, we've got to be real careful here, guys. If you weren't here last week, let me put one more little bit of information. Just because God is sovereign over all things does not mean that he's the cause of all things. Just because trials come in our life and he has full knowledge of those trials does not mean that we have this link of causation. That all bad things and all good things are caused by God. No, there's a lot of things that God just allows. Fallen people in a fallen world. But don't link causation with that. But here we see that there really is causation in some things that he disciplines us. There's a purpose. Why? So that we might be trained by it. That we might have this fruit of righteousness. That more and more we begin to look like Christ. So now we need this wisdom in order to properly attain this. Let's go back to James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Literally, that first part of the phrase, the God who continuously gives. When it says that, that word generously, means the God who continually gives. When James says without reproach, basically what that means, God doesn't throw it back in your face. Have you ever had somebody that it really was more punishment than discipline because they threw it back in your face? Well, if you wouldn't have done this stupid thing, you wouldn't be dealing with this. I mean, have you ever had somebody lovingly tell you those things? And what were you thinking? That's kind of a loaded question, isn't it? I mean, you're in the midst of your sorrow. You're in the midst of heartbreak. And there's a part of this that you really do think that you can own. And, and all you get out of this Christian friend, all you get out of your mom or daddy, all you get out of this brother or sister is, what were you thinking? When James says that we can ask for, for God and, and he gives liberally without reproach, what it means is God doesn't throw it back in your face. He's saying, Bobby, what were you thinking? Now, will he discipline me? Will he even use that past? Yes. But he doesn't, it's not that attitude of throwing it back into your face. That's what James is talking about. He says you can come and ask for wisdom. Why? Because God is going to give it to you generously. He continues to give, and he doesn't throw it back in your face. Because it's one thing if you ask for wisdom in our mindset, if it's for the good of man. God, help me to solve cancer. So I can go out there and ill the world of this disease. But we're not always as quick to ask God when we've created the cancer of our lives. 
It really is our sin and our rebellion and our failure to keep his, his law in, in our life. When we've done that, sometimes we don't have this bold approach to go to God and say, okay, God, give me this wisdom. But James is saying, for Christians, for those that are in Christ, this isn't punishment. God is using this for his glory and for your good and to mature you. Have you ever gone to somebody and, and you want to help them out and, and the, the help that they gave you was more painful because they rubbed your nose in it? And it didn't really seem like help. I mean, maybe they were speaking truth that yes, this would not have happened if you would have not have done this and this. God's not going to rub your nose in it. He doesn't rub your nose in it. James says God doesn't do that. He doesn't have the attitude of stinginess. He has the attitude of generosity. His perspective is not the past, but the future. He's working to a place out here, not going back so that you have to revisit the past over and over again. I mean, think about this realistically in a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, rather than our normal one. If you were 75 years old and you had rebelled against God your whole life, and we had a God who really was kind of looking for retribution back here out of your life, you better hope that you can live to be about 151. I mean, does that make sense? That if God said, okay, look, we're going to spend a little time on your past, I'm hidden in Christ, guys. If you put your faith in your trust, you're hidden in Christ. And my past is hidden in Christ. And it's been completely covered by his blood and it has complete victory because of the cross. That is not a cheap gospel. That is an expensive gospel. But let's not cheapen it by thinking, well, you know, I've got to kind of pay a little bit of this myself. You couldn't pay the first penny of it. It's all in Christ. And yet, why do these thoughts of guilt, punishment, all these different things come? Because this is the, the nature that we still have to contend with. And so James is, is kind of pushing us along to say, okay, here's how you can think biblically. And you need wisdom for that. You can't think like you normally think. You need a wisdom that's not your own. God will give you this wisdom so that you can start seeing things for, as they are biblically and not just humanly. There is a condition there, though, he puts at the end. Uh, look at verse 6 and 7. But let him, that is a believer, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now, I think this is often very many times confused that if you have an ounce of doubt in your faith, that God just says, okay, nothing. That's not really what verse, I believe, what verse 7 is saying. I think he's being quite logical here. He says, okay, if you're trying to exercise faith and doubt at the same time, realize you're going to be torn back and forth. Isn't that what it feels like sometimes when the head says one thing and the heart says something else? A tug of war? And depending on the, the wind of that moment, the head is winning. Oh, no, no, the heart's winning. And you're torn between the two. And he gives a picture there of, of uh, an angry sea. And the audience that he was talking to would have been familiar with how fast storms can come up uh, there on the Sea of Galilee. 
I mean, how many times were they just kind of singing along on a beautiful day like this, and then all of a sudden this storm comes out of nowhere? That's the Sea of Galilee because if you've ever been there, if you've ever seen pictures of it, there's mountains kind of off to the side, and a lot of times these winds will come down those mountains, and it can be just like it is outside right now, and then the next second just like this picture there. And that's what... uh, James is not saying, okay, you're like a wave going back and forth. You know, kind of if you go to the ocean, you just kind of watch the methodical wave going back and forth. It's almost trance-like. Okay, that's, no, he's talking about the winds are blowing and what wind is going to set you off this week? What wind of trial or trouble is going to send you in a direction where you begin to doubt? I don't believe that he's saying, okay, if you have just a little bit of doubt, man, he crosses you off the list and, and you're on the, the, the no-stocking-stuffer list for, for, you know, you get coal for Christmas. And I think he's being very practical and very logical. He said, you're going to fight doubt and, and faith. But he says, when you ask in faith, ask in believing in the character of God. And so oftentimes, guys, what we ask for is God to remove that trial. And really, that's our prayer. Okay, God, this is how I see victory. If you just remove this, and I promise you, I've prayed that prayer a thousand times. You have prayed that prayer, and, and tomorrow I may still pray that prayer, but he wants us to get beyond just seeing that the only victory we can have is if he removes this trouble or trial from our life, that there's sometimes this maturing process that he's allowed to happen in our life because he wants the more Christ-like Bobby at the end of the day, the end of the week, the end of the month, or the end of the life. He says, I love you enough. I care for you enough. I'm a good enough father that that I want that for you. So he says, you have to have faith, which begs the question, and and we're about to end, faith in what? Faith in God? Not in the most general sense. He's addressing Christians. He's assuming they already have believing faith in God and believing faith in Christ. So it's not just, you can't, don't walk out of here this morning and say, well, I kind of believe in God. Again, the Bible says that even the, the, the demons believe in God and they shudder. Believe that God will take it away? No. There's no indication in any of this writing that James is saying that Our faith is that God's going to eradicate this trouble from our life. What what is the faith in? That God has purpose and that he is a good God. And he's working for that purpose. His glory and your good. Christ's likeness in us. That's what we have faith in. Not that there won't be a lot of tears. Not that there won't be some heartbreak. But that when the why me's and, and the why this and the why now comes, that we would be able to say, okay, God, I need wisdom because this feels so wrong. This feels like it is just uh, more punishment than it is discipline. It feels like my world is falling apart rather than I'm maturing to become more like Christ. I don't have any of the emotions, any of the feelings, or even the logic in my mind that says that this is a good thing so that I can consider it all joy. But yet you have commanded me to consider all joy, not on the basis of it feels good, but that you are at work and that you're a sovereign God and that you have purpose in this. Remember what he said in verse 3, producing steadfastness. Basically, when he's comparing this to waves, he said, you don't have faith that God is doing that 
than you really are. There's going to be the winds of your daily life, and you're going to feel like you're here, there, and everywhere. And we've all had those weeks, guys. We've all had those days, and sometimes we've had those months and years. And we really don't seem like we can get firm grounding. And part of that problem is that that's where we just have to go, say, okay, God, will you give me wisdom? Will you give me understanding? Not so much just take this from me. Not so much just work everything out. Will you give me understanding? Because I, I see no good in this. And yet you've made a promise that you're always working for Christ's likeness in me. That's where James ends and he says, okay, he's a double-minded man. Literally, in the Greek, a double-souled man. So you have one soul that says, okay, go God. And another one that says, I'm so afraid. I want to wrestle with this myself. I want to do this myself because at least I can trust myself. Guys, read from Genesis to Revelation and one of the conclusions you will come to at the end of that reading is that you can't trust yourself. Fallen people in a fallen world. One last thing and then we'll end. Go back to to the Hebrews, chapter 12. James is not trying to be simplistic here. He's trying to be very, very thorough. Let's finish with this, and then I'm going to pray and close. Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, go back to 11, you see that there's this great Christian witness there. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with what? Endurance, we keep on seeing this. You say, okay, this is what I'm trying to produce in you, this endurance, this ability. He said, the race is set before us. Now look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. One of the most amazing verses of the entire Bible. For the joy set before him. Well, Bobby, I, I kind of remember Jesus in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was sweating drops of blood, and he was grieving over this. He, he was not looking for this cross. The writer of Hebrews goes, okay, let me give you the big picture. Yeah, for the moment there, he really is struggling. But for the joy of it, for the joy of it, what was the joy? That there was a bigger picture. You go back to Isaiah Another one of the strange verses, and it pleased God to crush his son. Please God to crush Christ? Yeah, when you look at the big context of it, because he was accomplishing something. Well, he's accomplishing his salvation for you and me so that we could be a part of his family. That's the joy that was set before Christ. It was not the physical pain. It was not the spiritual pain. It was not all of those things. It was the joy of knowing that his father had called him to something that was much bigger than the temporary. And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants to know, that, that we're kind of we're, we're joining in that. And that's why we can have joy, not in the circumstance, but that God will not waste this moment and that he will bring it with great purpose to make us more like Christ. Let's pray together this morning. We love you, Father. We thank you. And, Father, these are tough words. Father, this would be one thing to preach this this week, and, and we've had a little, a little setback. But, Father, we gather together this morning and we bring real-life problems. Father, there, there are marriages that uh, 
have seen difficulty. But there are lives that, that have seen great difficulty. There have been people that have lost loved ones. So, Father, this is not just kind of a good word for those people that are fooling around in the baby pool. Father, this is deep into the pool kind of stuff. And yet, Father, we see direction. You, you call us to ask for wisdom. And, Father, that, that would be my prayer for us this morning as a body of Christ, as individuals in Christ this morning, that whatever I need, that we would come and say, okay, I need wisdom. Because I'm not to the point where I consider it joy yet. I can't wrap my, my brain or my heart around this fact that you're producing endurance, that you're making me more like Christ. All I can feel right now, God, is the pain. So will you give me this wisdom, this perspective of being able to see past my present feelings and, and, and what you're doing? Father, that's our simple prayer this morning as we pray this in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.